Hi. Excuse the slightly unusual surroundings of sitting in a car to record this, uh, but needs must. During this period of Advent, we often listen to the well-known scriptures about the birth of the Messiah, and we read the passages in Matthew and in Luke that describe the birth of Jesus. So we read, for example, in Matthew 1 verse 18, this is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. And we go on from there. What we don't often do is read the first 17 verses of Matthew chapter 1, which gives the human genealogy of Jesus. You know how it is that sometimes, perhaps particularly when we're young, we're asked to read a lesson in a church service, sometimes even at Christmas. If you ever get asked to read this one, it's one to avoid. It's hardly surprising we tend to skip this bit because it's mostly filled with a long list of names of who begat who. And most of the names we've probably never heard of and some of which we can hardly pronounce. So these verses at the start of Matthew, they conclude with this phrase, this sentence. Thus, there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile in Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. So for Matthew, it was clearly important to locate the birth of Jesus within the much larger story of God's people, right from the time God first launched his project to reclaim his whole creation. And it's important for us to realise that we ourselves are also a part of this much bigger story. But as I was reading this passage uh, recently, the Holy Spirit seemed to draw my attention particularly to this summary in verse 17, where Matthew highlights these three decisive moments in the history of God's people. Abraham, David and the exile. And how, in different ways, all of these point forward to the climax of the story, if you like, the pivot point of history when Jesus the Messiah is born. So I found myself asking, what could these three crucial episodes, these three vital phases that Matthew chooses to highlight, what do they teach us about hope, about generations of hope? Because hope is so much needed at this time. And which of these stages of hope do we, at this time, most resonate with? Is it perhaps with Abraham and what one might refer to as the promise of hope? Is it David and the foretaste of hope? Or is it the exile and the shattering of hope? And of course, each of these looks ahead to the coming of the Messiah and the realisation of hope. So let's start with Abraham and the promise of hope. So it all starts with God's call to Abraham, telling him to leave where he was settled and journey to the land God was promising him. And as he journeyed, God gave him some quite remarkable promises. He promised to bless him. He promised to give him a specific homeland, to make him into a great nation, to make him an instrument of blessing to many and ultimately for all people on earth. And he repeats these promises 
Throughout Abraham's life, several times over a period of many years and in different contexts, clarifying the promises and making them more specific and more explicit. And then, after a long, long delay, and when from a human perspective the promises seem to be more and more impossible, God insists that he will nevertheless fulfil what he has said. So, what is the Holy Spirit wanting us to learn about hope from this example? Are some of us perhaps in the Abraham phase, where we've set out with God, maybe left some things behind, perhaps with his promises ringing in our ears? And I'm not merely thinking about those promises that are true for all of us as followers of Jesus, promises of being forgiven, being included in God's family being given a future destiny. But I'm also thinking about the personal promises that we may have sensed from God. I think Adam alluded to this last week. And when Abraham has these encounters with God and receives these promises, he often marked the occasion by building an altar. And then later, sometimes years later, he would go back and revisit these places. If that's where we are, if we are in an Abraham phase, then here are a few thoughts for how we can apply these lessons. Firstly, can I suggest we need to try and identify what we believe God has actually promised to us and to try and put down a marker, a bit like an altar, to help us remember. See, it may be something that we first sensed many, many years ago, perhaps when we first started out following him. But like Abraham, it will most likely be something that the Holy Spirit has brought back to our minds several times and over an extended period of time. Maybe we need to write this down somewhere, somewhere where we'll regularly see it. A sticky note on the fridge may not last very long, but perhaps a highlight in your journal, somewhere in your diary, and make a habit of regularly revisiting in prayer these promises that we've received. And remember, sometimes the fulfilment, the fulfilment of what God has said may take not days or weeks or months or even, even longer. It can take years and years, as indeed it did with Abraham. And then we need to notice God's promises to Abraham were much greater than he either would or could have ever understood. And it was more than just about Isaac. So when God speaks promises of hope to us, they tend, in my experience, to be greater than we imagine. At least they turn out that way. We may cling to our little hopes. But where our hope is mistaken, it's usually because it's inadequate, it's, it's far too small. God wants to do something so much more. So let's allow the Holy Spirit to enlarge our imagination. In the New Testament, Paul makes much of the fact that when God promised Abraham that he would have descendants like the stars in the sky, despite at that time having no child and no prospect of ever having one, we nonetheless read that he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. 
Now, maybe we sometimes feel like failures when we read those verses. Because while we may have moments when we feel we can trust what God has promised, if we're honest, much of the time we're filled with doubts, with questions, or even with cynicism. If that's where we're at, we don't need to despair because Abraham actually was exactly the same. Yes, on one specific occasion, he did believe what God had said. But over the next couple of chapters we read in Genesis, when God's promise remained outstanding, Abraham was very sceptical. First, he tried to manipulate circumstances to arrange a way in which the promise could come true. And then when God reiterated the promise, we read how Abraham laughed laughed to himself in disbelief. How could I become the father at the age of a hundred, he thought. And how could Sarah have a baby when she's 90 years old? So Abraham said to God, may Ishmael, that's his son, instead live under your blessing. Now it delights our father when we do trust him. But if we sometimes fail to trust, that does not invalidate what God has said. Because we need to remember, thirdly, that we shouldn't be surprised or discouraged if our hope in God sometimes wavers. God's promises are rooted in him and not in us. His promises are rooted in him and not in us and our ability to always believe. And of course, ultimately, as Paul explains in Galatians, the promised seed of Abraham, the true descendants that were promised to him, was actually Jesus, the Messiah, in whom, truly, all peoples on earth are blessed, and blessed far beyond anything that the patriarch could have conceived. And as Paul declares in 2 Corinthians, no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. Sometimes we need to remind ourselves of that. No matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Jesus. So if we feel that we're perhaps in an Abraham phase with respect to our hopes, here's some things to remember. Identify what God has promised and keep reminding ourselves and reminding him of these promises. Invite him to enlarge our imagination to see the bigger hope that he intends. Don't beat ourselves up if at times, especially when we see no evidence of things being realised, we struggle to cling to our hopes. And remember to locate our hope above all else in Jesus. Now, according to Matthew, 14 generations then pass before the next milestone that he chooses to highlight. And he highlights David. And you might describe that as David and the foretaste of hope. For the nation of Israel, the, the reign of King David was a golden age in terms of deliverance from oppression and victory over the enemies that surrounded them, in terms of wealth and honour for the nation, in terms of the flourishing of the people under God, this was the very best of times. So what can we learn about hope from David and the kingdom that he established? Perhaps some of us may feel we're in something like a David phase with respect to our hopes. Perhaps things seem to be going rather well, although maybe not so much this year. 
if not now, then perhaps we dream of this in the months to come. That we're going to be in this time of great blessing. And if that's us, then here are a few things to keep in mind. Firstly, just recall, David rose from very humble beginnings to become Israel's greatest king. When things are going really well, we need to beware the temptation to pride. We need to remember who to acknowledge. You see, in the good times, there's a temptation to assume that it's basically down to us. We're smart or we're gifted or maybe we're just lucky, but we've got it sorted on our own. But we are somehow special in ourselves. Now, the truth is we are special, but we're special because God loves us and he has graciously chosen to work in us and through us. In 2 Samuel 23, we find the final words of David. It says this, the oracle of David, son of Jesse, the oracle of the man raised up as the ruler chosen by the God of Jacob, Israel's beloved singer of songs. Love that phrase, Israel's beloved singer of songs. You see, David's greatest legacy was not, in fact, his victory of Goliath and the Philistines. It was the songs and poems of praise and worship, the profound lyrics he wrote expressing passionate prayer and deep lament. These are the psalms that help us today to express exactly these same emotions. When God is leading us through periods of blessing and periods of victory, the only appropriate response is heartfelt worship heartfelt praise. Remember that Jesus, the one who was called the son of David, once said that if the people did not praise him, the very stones would cry out. Sometimes I, I wonder if my own heart can be a bit like a stone, rather cold, hard and unresponsive. I may claim that I'm genuinely grateful, but somehow I don't make the time to consciously express my thankfulness. Praise is the only appropriate response. And equally, if God is walking us through times of hardship and struggle, and David had plenty of those as well, then the Psalms he wrote give us words to express those feelings to God as well. Something I've discovered recently. Of course, not everything in David's life was a resounding success. Even at a time of national peace and prosperity, David fell into the most appalling sin, committing adultery and orchestrating the murder of a loyal subject. So when we're in a phase of blessing, we need to be alert. We need to stay on our guard. As Paul says, if you think you're standing, be careful that you don't fall. Peter says the same thing. He says, be alert because our enemy prowls around like a lion. I love the way C.S. Lewis highlights this in one of his Screwtape books, where the senior devil lectures the others and says, Nowhere do we tempt so successfully as on the very steps of the altar. We need to beware of being overly self-confident. When we're in a David phase, sensing so much of God's blessing, that's the moment to be careful 
to walk humbly, to be on our guard. It is very true, the old adage, that pride comes before a fall, and it certainly did for David. But the thing is, however glorious David's kingdom may have seemed, it just didn't last. In fact, it began to fall apart within just one generation. In truth, David's reign and David's kingdom was no more than a foretaste of the true kingdom that was coming. The kingdom that we read about, especially at this time of year, in the prophecy of Isaiah, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. So if we're in a David phase and things seem to be going well, we need to remember who we need to humbly acknowledge. We need to deliberately make time to express our thankfulness to God. Psalms are a good place to start. And we need to remain on guard, lest in moments of success we prove that proverb that pride comes before a fall. And then we need to remember to fix our hope on the true king and the true kingdom that has come and is still, in a sense, yet to come. The kingdom of our Lord and Christ Jesus. And then in Matthew, a further 14 generations pass before the next decisive period that Matthew chooses to highlight, and the most painful one. You could call this the exile, the shattering of hope. You see, the kingdom that David established, as I mentioned, it fell apart really quite quickly. The nation divided, the people forgot their calling, and they forgot and abandoned their loyalty to God and allowed themselves to become ensnared by idols from the surrounding culture. And despite God's repeated reminders and his words of warning, they refused to return to him. And the inevitable outcome was that the nation was repeatedly overrun and invaded by the surrounding powers, until finally most of the remaining population was taken away into exile in Babylon. If David's reign had been the best of times, then this exile truly was the worst of times. You see, in exile, all the familiar symbols of their identity were removed. Their familiar homeland was far away and no longer accessible. They just couldn't go there. Their temple and all the familiar routines associated with their faith they were gone. All their hopes were shattered. And maybe after the year we've had, this sounds just a little bit familiar. And yet God used the experience of exile to teach them some vital lessons, lessons that they could not learn any or would not learn any other way. Where their sin had led the people to being ejected from their land. God used the exile to face them up with their sin, to make them reevaluate their misplaced confidence, and to bring them to deep and sincere repentance. Think of Nehemiah's prayer. He says, I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed your commands, your decrees, and the laws you gave your servant Moses. And where in their homeland the people of Israel had deserted God and embraced idols, in a foreign land filled with idols, they had to learn what faithfulness 
truly means. Just pause and think for a minute about Daniel and his friends. Renouncing idolatry and staying faithful to God in exile. So if we feel that we've been going through an exile phase, and this year may have felt quite like that for many of us, then there are lessons of hope for us here as well. Firstly, if God has allowed many of our familiar external sources of identity and sources of support to be removed, then perhaps he wants us to learn to lean more on him for ourselves. That's why over recent months we've talked about the need to dig our own wells, why we've been encouraging each other to develop personal habits to sustain our walk with Jesus. How are you doing with practicing the suggested rule of life that we've published recently? Exile was a period of profound re-evaluation for the Jews. You see, they had simply presumed that as God's chosen people, no matter how unfaithful they were, somehow such a national disaster could never overtake them. But in fact, it was only through this deeply humbling process that they would come to recognise the true state of their hearts. And only through this would their idolatry be clearly exposed and would they be brought to a point of sincere repentance. So secondly, we need to learn, and we do learn most, during the hard times. We learn most during the hard times. We learn about ourselves. We learn about the depth, or otherwise, of our commitment to Jesus. We learn about the idols in our lives that compete for our allegiance. We learn most in the hard times. And yet, also, it was during this time of exile that God gave the most profound prophetic revelation, giving insight to Daniel particularly concerning the rise and fall of a whole sequence of world empires, and more than that, revealing God's ultimate purpose to re-establish his rightful rule over the whole earth through the coming Messiah. We read in Daniel, There before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient days and was led into his presence, and he was given authority and glory and sovereign power, and all nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Of course, Jesus chose to refer to himself as the Son of Man, taking that title directly from Daniel's vision. He knew himself to be the specific fulfilment of this revelation given to Daniel. As we go through difficult times, times when many things in which we trusted get stripped away, these times can nevertheless become places of new insight and new revelation about God's purposes. So if we're facing what seems like a time of exile, when many of our hopes get shattered, then such times can in fact be used by God to rebuild new hope, hope on a more solid foundation. So when many things in which we've placed our hope are removed, we can learn to cling more tenaciously to our Father. Periods of exile give us the opportunity to confront and deal with the sometimes painful truths about ourselves and the idols in our lives. 
And yet, if we will, like Daniel, stubbornly pursue God, even in times of exile, he can release to us new prophetic insight and inspire even greater hope. Hope birthed in Jesus. As I think Adam quoted last week from Romans 5, we can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials, for we know that they help us develop endurance, and endurance develops strength of character, and character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. And this hope will not lead to disappointment, for we know how dearly God loves us, because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. Generations of hope then. Are we like Abraham, grappling with the promise of hope, even when it seems such a long time coming? Don't give up. The true child of promise has come. Or are we, like David, in a period, or perhaps anticipating a period, when we will experience a foretaste of hope? And let's be careful to stay alert and stay humble. Our true king and our true ruler has been born. Or do we feel we're facing a period of exile, the shattering of hope? Then let's allow the Holy Spirit to use this time to refine us, to help us to reevaluate our priorities, to refocus our hopes. For the kingdom is coming, and it's centred on the Son of Man, whose birth we celebrate at Advent. Let's pray. And now, may the God of hope fill us with all joy and peace as we trust in him, so that we may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.